Dan Herrer, what an honor and a pleasure it is to have you on Hemp Errands today. Thank you so much for being with us, brother. It's my pleasure to be here. You, I have had the great pleasure of knowing for a certain number of years now, met you with my mentor, Andrea Herman, who I love to call because she is the global first lady of hemp. Uh, and of course, it's <laughs> such a thrill, you know, to know you, uh, to be a part of your life, to have you in mine, um, particularly in that the original founding major and still to this day speaking to me from the other side inspiration in my life is your father jack herrer the original author and author as it is of the emperor wears no clothes which i often and i hope it doesn't offend you refer to as the bible of the cannabis and hemp movements so i it's just wonderful to have you here brother no problem, and it doesn't offend me at all to call The Emperor Wears No Clothes uh, the Bible of the hemp and cannabis movement uh, because it, it, it is a book that its, its power and intensity and how it's affected people's lives uh, has been inspirational, not just uh, in, the, in the, the town of the San Fernando Valley where it was written, uh, but it has literally proliferated around the, the globe and affected people's lives. Uh, from from Los Angeles to Nepal, and I, I couldn't be more proud of that. Oh, it, it is really something, you know, I after having been in hemp for 30 years, people interview me all the time. And generally someone asked the question, um, as Dan Humiston, the producer of Hemp Barons, originally asked me before I became the host of this podcast, uh, what got you into hemp? What inspired you? And the answer is the same every time. And it is a Grateful Dead show in the spring of 1990 in Foxborough, Massachusetts, wherein somebody handed me a flyer with excerpts from The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And I had no idea, no idea, I was 20 years old at the time, uh, what the story was there. And, and I'd actually, of course, believed um, that in 1990, we were probably going to kill the planet and each other in some type of nuclear war, but that surely on our way, on our way to ultimate death and destruction, we should believe in peace, love, and music. And there I find myself at a Grateful Dead show and somebody hands me this flyer and this information. And, and I'm a gal, I was raised by a very critical thinking attorney. I'm a critical thinker in compliance and complex civil litigation myself. I don't believe everything I read. That flyer affected me on a cellular level. It, it altered the trajectory of my life. It, it, it literally opened up what my life's work and, and purpose is um, because it, it created this convergence of consciousness for me, of awareness that actually not only are we not destined to kill the planet and each other, we are destined for harmony and there is a pathway to that harmony and that that pathway is actually a felony, that it has been criminalized by special interests in the 1930s. And that convergence of this deep sense of justice and planetary healing and social justice came together in, in just a, a tremendous way that has clearly um, affected me and, and changed me tremendously. And, and meeting your dad later on in 1995 in Amsterdam and Chansey, uh, your sister in, uh, in Holland in Amsterdam. Amsterdam at the 8th Annual Cannabis Cup was just really had set me on fire, but I'd already opened up New York's first hemp store uh, by then. Can you tell us 
what was it like growing up in Oregon with Jack Herrer for a father? It, it was neither popular nor safe, of course, to be an advocate for any form of cannabis. What was it like for you and your siblings, brother? Well, one, I, I, I didn't grow up in Oregon. I, I've only visited it a couple times. My, my father brought us to the San Fernando Valley in 1967 when uh, he was about 28. I was only five years old. And we grew up, uh, the first few years that I, I remember was pretty textbook American family. You know, father, mother, brothers getting in trouble going to school. Then uh, my father, my mother got divorced uh, shortly after that. And my father went on his own. He was working at a sign company doing neon uh, sign repair. And that was, that was the normal life. And then he caught my mother smoking cannabis in the house where his kids slept and lived. And he was conflicted uh, because he felt that he had to turn my mother into the police because my father was not a cannabis person at all. He was ex-military, super right Republican, thought that every hippie counterculturist and anti-war protester were completely un-American and should be taken out and summarily shot. And when he found my mother uh, smoking cannabis, he was like, I have to turn her in. And he went back to the place where he was living, where there was a girl uh, that he knew that was going to law school. And he said, you know, I, I have to do this. And she said, Jack, you're a fucking idiot. You don't know anything. If you do this, you're going to ruin your own life, your wife's life, your kid's lives. And, you know, you should just get over it. And for whatever reason, he took her, he took her advice. But then he also developed a fondness for her. So this attraction, you know, he wanted to date her and he kept asking her out. And, and she kept saying, no, Jack, you're just too square. You're too ignorant. I can't, I can't hang out with you. And finally she said, okay, Jack, if you want to go out, you're going to have to come over to my apartment and you're going to have to smoke some pot with me. And she got my father high um, for the very first time in his life. I'm sure that his loneliness at the time was quite a determining factor and something that would uh, include uh, smoking pot with, with somebody or anybody. But he got stoned with her. And she, at that time, put a pair of headphones on his head. He heard music and color. Um, they you know, enjoyed food out of the refrigerator in the kitchen. And it was the best, it was the best food ever. I mean, it could have been mayonnaise. I don't know. But, you know, sometimes when you're high, everything tastes great. Then, you know, they spent the evening together and they had the, the, the best intimacy of, of his life. Um, I'm not sure about it on her side. And he woke up the next day and he hadn't killed anybody. He didn't commit suicide. He had the best night of his life. He heard the best music of his life, had the best food of his life, had the best sex of his life. And he was like, how is all of this possible when everything else that I've ever learned about or heard about cannabis uh, is completely contrary to what his experience was? And that actually upset my father because he felt that he had been lied to and betrayed by the country that had educated him. And told him that the war, you know, that this war on on marijuana and and drugs was was just and right. And his experience was that his experience with cannabis was one of love and peace and enjoyment and and safety and 
community and he, he just started on a path of educating himself in and around cannabis which started uh two years after that with the first book that he wrote about cannabis called grass i have to i just you know i'm an authentic girl you know me well you know i am i want to sit here and be all cool about what you have just shared with me and the audience. And I can't believe for all the hours and amazing times we have spent together, Dan, I've not asked you these questions. We, 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 we sort of, when we're together, we be here now, right? We're, with, we're usually in a fantastic event. We're, we're just having a lovely time. And even though we, we have very deep conversations in the back of limousines and SUVs and every other thing, um, I've not asked you these questions. So I... There's part of me that's just like, I want to be cool here, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I am freaking out. I, my producer, Dan, who can see me while we're talking right now, I'm just like, this is so fantastic. I did not know this about your dad. This is incredible. He was square. It was a woman. It was a female. Yeah, just like the plant. Oh, just like the plant. She, she converted your father she she made him aware first of all she kept the family together and kept him making a terrible kept him from making a terrible mistake which he would surely regret um and then this incredible experience happens with him like like what happens with plant medicine we're we know every indigenous culture in the world has this deep relationship with plants because it's what allows us to get in touch with our spirituality and ex- expand our our consciousness and wow okay so that happened to your dad wow all right so Moving on from there, he has this this awareness and this enlightenment, and and what evolves from there, brother? Well, uh, what evolves from there was he wrote this book in uh, and published it in 1972 called Grass. He then met a gentleman who ran a head shop in the San Fernando Valley. His name was Ed Adair. Everybody called him Captain Ed. And my dad was walking into the store in 1971, 72 to sell his book and the, the guy was looks at the book and looks at my dad and my dad's sitting there with you know looking uh not like a hippie or somebody who would engage in cannabis and he looked at my dad and goes you wrote this and my dad was like yeah my dad was in there with like a polyester you know john travolta type you know jacket and big colored shirt and looking uh not like the the the, the counterculture type and for whatever reason, they became uh, tight friends. My dad then started uh, becoming more politically active, helped to support the Prop 19, which was the first cannabis initiative in the United States since Prohibition to legalize cannabis. Uh, it made it onto the ballot, but it did not pass. And it was that interaction with trying to change the understanding of cannabis that put my father on a path of enlightenment when it came to understanding and exposing the truth about cannabis, or at least the truth as he knew it at that time. And in 1976, he was a proponent of the, of the 76 California, uh, California marijuana initiative. It went on to the 1980 initiative, the 1984 initiative, the 1988 initiative, the the 1992 initiative. And that was my father's life. That was our life uh, growing up, you know, and in between that, you know, we ran businesses that supported, you know, what financially paid for these initiatives to get on the ballot. 
you know, how we went out and collected signatures, how we paid for the initiative, how we uh, caravaned, you know, signature petitioners around in order for them to collect signatures. And this was just part of our life, you know, for the next 20 years. And then in, in 1996, there were two initiatives that were going on the ballot. One was Proposition 215 in California, written by Dennis Perone. And the other one was the California Marijuana Initiative uh, that my father had at that time. And they were going to compete for signatures out there in the market. And Dennis approached my father and said, Jack, you know, I understand that you want everything to be legal and all of this to happen all at once, but people aren't there yet. And right now, people are starting to think and feel with their with their emotions in their heart with regards to what's happening in AIDS and cancer and all of these things that cannabis potentially can help with. And if we can if we can get people to to grasp onto this without without a lot of pushback, then we can always go after full legalization later. And so my father put down the 1996 initiative and joined with Dennis Perone and helped pass uh, Proposition 215. And it was the first time that people who had an opportunity to vote for something voted with their hearts and and not the fear and falsehoods that preceded it with all of the narrative about what marijuana was and how dangerous it was. It was finally people thinking about their, their, you know, their relatives, their mothers, their fathers, their sons, their daughters, you know, their grandparents that were suffering from Alzheimer's or AIDS or cancer or epilepsy. And, and people started thinking with love instead of fear. And uh, Proposition 215 passed and cannabis became accessible uh, to some degree. Uh, obviously, there's always, there, you know, there's always pushback and there's always complexities to what that is and what it has been and how it happened. But that was my father's political career in that. Now, in, in, in that same time, in 1985, just 14 years after uh, he had written his first book, he put out the, the Emperor Wears No Clothes. And that's a whole crazy story unto itself. And and I'd actually like to address that. I, I also want to uh, just freezing that moment, that that time period where we're talking about 1996, Prop 215, your your father's uh, collaboration and alliance with Dennis Perone. Um, at that point, 1996, uh, because I had gotten a cease and desist letter from the U.S. Secret Service for mutilating U.S. currency at my hemp store in. Woodstock, New York, because I was stamping I grew hemp uh, com- bubbles out of all of the Washington $1 bills. Um, but, and that's another whole story in itself, which High Times wonderfully turned into, and the Associated Press turned into just a fantastic educational and activism event. And, with, and that ended up with the U.S. Secret Service rescinding their cease and desist letter. But uh, because of that, and because back at the time, you know, hemp socks were $40 a pair, and Woodstock, New York has a very small population, unless it happens to be the dead of summer, uh, my my store did not survive. And I, in 1996, again, thank you so much to your dad's work and, and others in, in on the West Coast, the inaugural hemp bill passed in Vermont in 1996, not to grow, but to study with books, uh, hemp. And so I was a 
appointed to serve as the secretary of the Vermont Hemp Council, which was, I believe, statutorily mandated council as part of that of that law that had passed and relocated my then very young sons, who are now 26 and 28, um, about to be 27 and 29, to Burlington, Vermont, to serve in that position and to also help manage uh, three Vermont Hemporiums, which were uh, just retail stores, incredible, and also manufacturers of dyed hemp twine and some hemp garments. And Dennis Perrone ran for president, I believe, during that time. And uh, and we had a little show, CNN, the Cannabis News Network, <laughs> on public television there to support Dennis. That was also the time when, in 1995, when I was able to meet your dad in person, and now I'm putting things together that it was, of course, it was Chancy who was raised in Oregon, and you were raised in Southern California. Can you tell us a little bit about when your dad did move to uh, to Oregon, to basically a commune? Am I am I right on that, or am I misspeaking? Uh, you know what? I, I'm not sure that it was a commune, but uh, pretty much anywhere that my father lived, throughout my adult life uh, and, and throughout his cannabis uh, exploits, anywhere he lived became a commune. So, yeah, it was probably a commune. <laughs> love it. I love it in every sense. So, again, the emperor wears no clothes. Could you share with us a little bit, brother, about uh, sort of the highlights uh, that you know listeners would, would be fascinated by with regard to to the emperor wears no clothes, and it, which has now been edited and in its, its multiple edition, so more popular than ever from what I understand, and I can't wait to address how people can access that, and, and if you could even share with us how many languages it has been translated into, but what are some of the sort of more fascinating highlights as to how this incredible, again, Bible of the hemp and cannabis movements was born into the world? So in 1980, there was the California Marijuana Initiative uh, during the, um, the, the year that Reagan was elected president. And we were on the federal building lawn in Westwood Village, California, which is right off of the 405 freeway and uh, Wilshire Boulevard, for those who are familiar with the area the large white building directly off the freeway. And we started an encampment uh, at the federal building, uh, registering voters and and uh, getting uh, petitions signed uh, by college students at, at UCLA, which was right there. The initiative uh, didn't pass. We, we, didn't, we didn't get the signatures for the, for the initiative, but we stayed on the lawn. Ronald Reagan was elected. His president-elect motorcade brought him down from Bel Air, which just was just the other side of UCLA. And he was on his way to the federal building himself as he was on his way to his pre-inaugural haircut. And as he was passing Wilshire and Veteran Boulevards, which is where the federal building was, uh, he saw all these protesters out on the lawn. And when he pulled up to the security uh, in the motorcade and got out, he asked security, why are all the Canadians so upset that they would be protesting on the lawn of the federal building? And the security said, no, uh, Mr. You know, Mr. President, those aren't Canadians. Those are marijuana protesters. Because Ronald Reagan had mistaken the cannabis leaf for the maple leaf. And you know, he says, well, can't we do anything about that? And they said, no, they had already taken us to court. And that we had won and had the, we had the right to be there. 
And he said, well, I'm going to be sworn in as president in the next couple of weeks. Let me see what I can do. Well, shortly after his inauguration, police uh, from Los Angeles uh, came to the L.A. federal building and arrested my father and four other protesters for registering voters to vote. And my, my dad was like, that's not illegal. And he says, how, how is that, how is that uh, uh, you know, an offense? And the officer said, you're in violation of the Sedition Act. And my father, being an ex-military MP, knew what the Sedition Act was and said, well, we're not at war. So why would that be impl- impl- implemented here? And the, the officer poked my father in the chest and said, we're at war with you. My father and the, the protesters were um, arrested. The encampment on the lawn was disbanded. And um, for the next three years, my father was in and out of court uh, fighting a, a $5 fine. Now, the other four protesters paid the $5 fine and went on their way. My father, being a man of principle, said, fuck no, I'm not paying this. I'm an American citizen. I have the right to register voters to vote and, and, to, and to do petitioning uh, for, for my, you know, potential legislation or, you know, uh, new law, basically, and uh, refused to pay the $5 fine. Um, he went through uh, all of the appellate courts, finally ended up at the, at the, you know, the state superior court or, you know, the Supreme Court, the federal court in California. And he was then convicted finally in 1990, excuse me, 1983, 1984, and was sentenced to federal prison for registering voters to vote. Now, it's been 14 years since my father had a break at that point. He, he had always been busy working on initiatives or making paraphernalia for the, you know, for the industry. And he was bored and he's like, I, I don't know what to do. Send me some papers, send me something to write with. I just want to put down my thoughts. And so while he was in federal prison, he started outlining what would become the emperor wears no clothes. And when he, when he got out, he was able to format it into uh, a book or, you know, into a publishable uh, manuscript. And the first edition was printed in 1984. That was, that was on newspaper. And, and it's really funny when you, when you look back at it, you know, Ronald Reagan, in a sense, was the inspiration for my father picking up that pencil and getting that book written when it was, you know? So it's funny that the Ronald Reagan trying to deal with the war on drugs got my father to work or to write a book that actually is helping to end the war on drugs. You know, I, I have to give Ronald Reagan a little bit of credit for uh, the book's existence. But but here's the thing: in 1985 was the first paperback version, but the first edition, the first publication of the Emperor Wears No Clothes was actually in 1984. And it was printed on newspaper that I actually happened to have a copy of. Oh, so jealous. And, and I just have to quickly insert here, of course, that we're talking 1984, 1985. Guys, there were no word processors. A Xerox machine was not easy to come by at the time. And so we're talking border tape and exacto knives and a photocopier. That is how the truth of the world was first printed. Continue, Dan. 
No. No, it was really prints on newspaper. It wasn't even photocopy. This was newspaper. Oh. This was like, like something you'd pull out of one of those little, you know, 10-cent little boxes that used to sit on the street kind of newspaper, you know? Uh, like the green sheets or, you know, the, the little Valley News or whatever that would come out of these little newspaper boxes that were scattered around every neighborhood. And that was the format of the very, very first. Oh, my God. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. And and I do also just want to take a moment here to just the, the conviction, the determination, the, the patriotism the true and real patriot uh, that your father was and that he raised his children to be, the principled man, the principled citizen of the United States, the freest country in the world, and to be so strong in, in his understanding of the law and of his rights and of the fight that he was fighting uh, I, I just, you know, to say every hair is standing on end while you tell us these stories um, would be an understatement. Then, and feel free to keep going, brother. <laughs> you know, so so it, it's just really amazing, and, and I will I will tell you that, you know, as as amazing as the book may be perceived today, I can tell you that when my father was writing it, and I remember sitting. I, I remember sitting in his living room and he would sit at the table and he had, uh, you know, the old electronic typewriters. And I remember the, 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 the clacking of the keys as he was, you know, fat thumbed poking at it uh, and, you know, ripping out pages out of the top that he would throw it over at me and said, here, read this. And I, I would, I would read it. And I'm like, okay. And, and he's like, why don't you understand? You know, you realize how important this is, this is and you know I, it wasn't that I was rebellious or I you know but I I thought my dad was fucking crazy you know he was sitting there telling me that that marijuana and pot was gonna save the world and I'm just like okay dad please don't tell that to any of my friends and you know it was just that was just it, it, because it was just too much you know it was too much for me and he was my dad and so uh, you know, the book was published, it started selling, and, and I actually, when it was finished, I, I actually read it, and I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool, you know, and, and I don't know that I, that I bought into all of it when I first read it, you know, because I, I had gotten the same education that he had gotten, and the same education that he had gotten, and virtually everyone else, not only in this country, but in the world, had gotten that this plant was the most notorious, the most dangerous, you know, the most addictive, the most, you know, all of these things. And even though I didn't ex experience the addictive side of that when I started smoking pot in the 70s, but the reality of somebody saying that cannabis was going to save the world was just too far for me. But it, as I started reading it and I started going into the documentation that created it, I, I realized that, oh, my God, this this is like really earth shattering. It's, it's life changing. It was the first time that anybody who had used cannabis or believed in cannabis or experimented with cannabis had information that was indisputable, that was documented, that, it, you know, the documentation went so far as to look at the studies that declared that cannabis was illegal and then debunked with actual real documentation that said that it wasn't dangerous. And so 
this made this book incredibly powerful. It, 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 it gave people a sense of hope about what they thought and who they were and what they believed in a way that nothing else ever had at that time. And, and the power of that and, and the strength that it gave people to find their voice and stand up in their communities and fight for legalization, fight for change and fight to end prohibition and, and fight to give people medicine that could change their lives. You know, it, it was just a, an extraordinary transformation through the next 50 or 20 years of the book being printed. And every time that somebody would get the book and they would read it, they would immediately give it to somebody else and go, you have to read this book. And then that book was traded, you know, it was given to somebody else and then given to somebody else and given to somebody else. And over, over 30 years, you know, or 25 years at the time when my father passed, you know, after all of this time, it may have only sold between 750 and a million, 750,000 and a million copies, but it had probably been read anywhere from 20 to 30 million times because people just kept sharing it. And it just got around this country and then it got around the world. And then, you know, it started being printed in other languages. And then it just started really changing the narrative of, of, what cannabis was and what its understanding was and how important hemp was to the creation of this country as well as the, the dominant production in most countries. It was it was used for everything. And you know, and it's so funny when I hear people today talk about, you know, oh hemp can be, you know, paper, plastic, fiber, fuel and all this stuff. And yet they haven't read the emperor, but they're quoting it. You know, and it's it's, it's just mind-boggling how that book, written in 1984, printed in paperback in 1985 in the shitty little apartment in the San Fernando Valley, has changed the, 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 the understanding and, and added, added new opportunity and, and, and a new way to look at the future that we cannot, we don't, we don't have to just survive a future, we can thrive in it. And this book is still just as powerful today as it's ever been even when it was first published because when it was first published it was it went out to it went out to the tribe you know it went out to us it went out to the people that were in cannabis and they were like whoa you know now it's being read by people that aren't in cannabis and they're like holy shit and and it's still impacting lives today A few things that I, I just want to make sure I get in here. Uh, you know, one is the U.S. government, which is really the global bully of cannabis prohibition, didn't just want to take the plant away from our consciousness and our awareness. They wanted to take all knowledge of the plant uh, uh, and its awareness away from us. And and so when you say, of course, you got the same education that everybody enjoy, even more than that. They wanted to eradicate this plant off of the off planet. Off of the planet. I mean. So much so, so much so that in the 1970s, the federal government actually sprayed poison on cannabis, knowing that consumers would smoke this cannabis and potentially die from this poison called Faraquat. And you can look it up, you can look it up in, in newspapers or on the, on the internet right now, folks, if you're out there listening punch in Paraquat at the U.S. government, and you'll find that the, that the U.S. government actually tried to poison cannabis out of existence by killing people 
It is just it. it, it Paraquat is a stain on U.S. history of pretty tremendous uh, proportions. Obviously, just hellacious, and so. And so your father digs up with with a small team of people and again p- pinching pennies and rubbing nickels together and visiting the national archives and digging up because again as you say you got the same education that I did to the extent all of these facts were true then why on earth was it not in every dictionary why wasn't it in every set of encyclopedia why aren't the museums filled with this rich hemp history because it was intentionally censored and eradicated from our consciousness and here your father and his team delivering the truth delivering the evidence delivering the cited documentation so much of that work and the and we all know there's there's stuff that isn't cited and there is a ton that is cited dug up from uh, the United States National Archives to show the emperor wears no clothes here just uh such tremendous stuff and when you talk about the that the that it was delivered to the tribe I just can't help but mention that in the land of the dark, the ship of the sun is driven by the Grateful Dead. Now, that is a quote from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It is certainly not why the Grateful Dead named their band that. That was actually more from a, from a fable. It's just incredible. I mean, you just mentioned the Egyptian. The Egyptian gods used to have the symbol of cannabis uh, above their heads, uh, uh, shrouded, you know, covered in, 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 a, in a dome. Uh, and inside that dome was the cannabis leaf above the gods' heads as they were uh, doing mathematics and creativity and, and free thinking and, you know, all, all of this, um, you know, cerebral energy that, that, the, that, the, that the gods used to uh, share was depicted with cannabis above their heads, which is carved in hieroglyphics of the pyramids. This is as old as time. And the, re- and the reason why, you know, uh, they tried to eradicate, or I'm going back to the government now, the reason the government and industry try to uh, eradicate it, and it's, it's, it's as true today as it was in the 1920s and 30s, is that cannabis, or hemp, however you want to categorize it, I say cannabis, I'm talking about everything exclusively, yes. cannabis is the most disruptive technology ever known to mankind because it displaces everything that we use today in modern civilization from our fuels, our papers, our fibers, our fuels, our plastics, all of these things that are derived from the synthetic cycle are, 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 are threatened by the existence of hemp even today, uh, whether it's pharma, whether it's fuel, whether it's the clothes we wear, whether it's the ink in our pens, uh, it, it, it has the ability to replace all of the things that we've been using for nearly 100 years to poison this planet and create the incredible echo issues that we have globally. And it all can be addressed to some degree or to an extraordinary degree by embracing cannabis and hemp to their full utilities and giving people an opportunity to live, to survive, and to thrive in a future without the fear of being poisoned by the water you drink or the, or the ground that you grow your food in or the cars or the vehicles that you, that you drive or, or, you know, it's, it's just, it changes everything about humanity. Or the clothes you wear and the food you eat and, and the paper you write on. So, so all of that, brother, just so, uh, so tremendous. And, and again, the, the Grateful Dead was 
And it it is now, of course, but Jerry Garcia died in 1995, so there was a bit of a sabbatical, and now we have COVID. But the bottom line is it was a traveling, sold-out, everywhere. There was no such thing as a non-sold-out Grateful Dead show uh, by this time, going right on through uh, up until August of 1995 when Jerry Garcia died. And so we're talking groups anywhere from 20,000 to 75,000 people because, of course, there were thousands and thousands of people that came to the show without a ticket that never were able to get into the show. But that's why the parking lot was its own community and den of enlightenment. Yes. And information its own show. And that is where I got my first dose of the emperor wears no clothes. And I took it and I ran with it as so many, as so many people did. And when we talk about sharing that book, it literally wasn't until I finally invested in my archival copy of a first edition because I could never keep a copy of The Emperor Wears No Clothes because the first thing I want to do with it is give it away. But I will not give away my first edition. Uh, my, my first edition, it is a collector's item and, and it's mine. Um, so so let's come up now to the uh, to the modern day, brother. Uh, your father, may he rest in peace. He uh, he had a stroke, and of course, he was a staple here at Seattle Hemp Fest, where we're going on our 29th annual Seattle Hemp Fest this year, as you well know. And your father just religiously and faithfully uh, would show up every August, third weekend in August, just like the Woodstock reunion. That's when uh, Hemp Fest takes place in person, when we do it in person. Obviously, there's gotten a little bit virtual since COVID, but... Um, and we got to see your dad every single August, every summer. You could count on Jack signing books, speaking, uh, inspiring the crowd uh, to the nth degree. Um, and then he had a stroke. So as we come up to the to the modern day, brother, can you just tell us about his stroke and then um, and the year that your father did pass on? Oh, well, in the early uh, in early two thousands. After, after, like you said, my father being a staple at uh, at the Seattle Hemp Fest, he was there from the very first. To, you know, in fact, uh, you know, the year the year of his stroke and the year that he passed, the only two years, I I think that he he was not in attendance there. And in, in 2000, uh, 2001, I believe it was when he had his first stroke. It was it was devastating because my, my father was such, I, I want to say a linguist. He was so passionate. And his voice was so powerful. It was, it was just, I couldn't process it. My family was having a hard time processing and my father being that his voice was how he communicated, how he lifted people up, how, how he inspired folks. It wasn't just the words of the book. It's the words that he believed to his core. And you can tell by the way that he spoke and the way that he was driven. And to have that voice silenced by the stroke was just devastating to him. It was so frustrating him watching, you know, watching and experiencing him uh, just struggle to say a simple, a simple word like fuck. And, and, and eventually that was one of the only words he could say uh, initially because he was so frustrated that, you know, he was just exclaiming that at, at the top of his lungs, uh, you know, when he was able to form a word that would, emanate from his from his his thoughts and finally get out it was it was a frustration and it took an immense amount of energy and you know therapy and cannabis and 
mushrooms and every other thing that he could think of uh, that could help to hopefully free his mind and get him back to where uh, he could communicate. And it took, it took a couple of years before he was able to really uh, have an, op, uh, an ability to even carry on a simple conversation. And, and even furthermore, even to understand the conversation because he would get frustrated as he was trying to process what people were saying. He couldn't really understand, you know, he would understand some things and not other things. And then the frustration would turn to anger. But over the years, he, he got much better at, at, and far less frustrated. And I, I think, you know, some of that had to do with the fact that he was doing so much uh, self-medicating, both with cannabis and, and mushrooms and, and so much therapy. Uh, that he eventually started to get his voice back, not the way it was, but enough to where he could go back out and, and start talking uh, at, at an audible, understandable level. And uh, it was rough. And then in 2009, he was at uh, Hempstock in Oregon, uh, again on stage. Uh, he was talking about how, you know, you got to keep fighting for cannabis and hemp. And that, you know, we should never pay the government taxes on it. Uh, he was very upset that day. He was, you could see him on stage. And unfortunately, I can't get it out of my head uh, because the, the day that he, that he had the heart attack while he was on stage uh, in, in Oregon, uh, it was posted on Facebook or something. And I literally watched my father have his heart attack uh, on the, watching the computer. And I watched him walk off stage where he collapsed and, you know, and, and, uh, it was just, uh, it was a very difficult time. Mm. Oh, brother. Oh, and he transitioned to the other side, April 15th of 2010. <laughs> on, on when, when did you say? Tax oh, day. tax day. Very sorry. Sorry. I'm talking over you. I apologize. Tax day, April 15th, 2000. And of course, when I saw it, I'm thinking, oh, five days before 420. But indeed, tax day, 2010 is when he transitioned, at which point the torch needs to be passed on here. And now coming up to the modern day, founder and CEO of the Herrer Group, Dan Herrer, tell us how this torch gets passed. Well, I can tell you it didn't pass what my father did. When my dad died, obviously my family was devastated. We were, we were broken. We knew that he was going to pass. Um, he had been, uh, in a sense, brain dead since, since that, uh, that day in September. 2009 and had been on some level of assistance or life support there, there was no there was no coming back for him it was just a matter of his body giving up after that happened it was just ultimate sadness for, for my family and I and it, 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 it took a couple of years to, to really you know come to grips with not seeing his voice and not not seeing the things that he was doing and, and not experiencing uh, both his anger and his joy, uh, both at what was happening in cannabis and the joy of having this family that, you know, every time he was in town that we were able to spend time with them, that, um, you know, it, it, it took a while. And the torch never really, it never really got passed. Nobody said to me, hey, uh, you know, Dan, you need to do this. It was just, um, it was just an emptiness. One night I was sleeping. Uh, it was 2012 sometime and 
I, it was, I was dead asleep and literally my father came and visited me and, and I, I know it kind of sounds funny, but like all of a sudden he was right there and, and he, he literally, I, I had this sensation of being picked up off the bed. And as I'm, as I'm being lifted, I open my eyes and there's my dad and he's got me, he's got the grip on my t-shirt and, and just looking at me in my face and gritting, uh, you know, like when he was mad and he was just said, what are you going to say something? And he just threw me back down on the bed and, and his spirit, whatever it was, was just gone. And, and I was just like, holy crap, what? And, and, uh, I, I didn't know what that meant. I, I didn't know anything. I was just freaked out. And, and I told my wife, I said, I, I don't know what to do. This happens. And I, I think I need to go back and re-embrace everything that I, I've done my whole life. And I, I said, I'm going to leave my job of 12 years. <laughs> I, I, we're going to lose any kind of financial security that that ever gave us. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back into trying to educate folks. And I'm going to go back into, into what I knew and how my father raised me. And I, I left my job and I, I started this Jack Harrow Foundation. I figured I'm going to teach people. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, maybe that's what my father meant is that I, I need to say something. I need to, I need to keep education moving forward. And, and I didn't really, you know, know how to build anything. I mean, not like that. I was just like, okay, this is my mission. I'm going to, I'm just going to do the best I can. And it went from uh, trying to build this foundation and quickly realizing that it needed to be funded and people weren't exactly just getting money away. So I was like, well, maybe I, I'm going to have to build a business. And so I, I started to, to look into building a, a hemp business because I didn't have the, the ability to, to get into growing cannabis or into anything like that. So I decided I'm going to do, I'm going to start a hemp company. And then that went into, you know, well, maybe I really do need to go into cannabis. And, and I started a, a company, you know, actually embracing my father's genetic. And uh, I, I, I created the original Jack Herrer cannabis brand here in California. And I've been working to build it ever since and continue to do so. And I still work with the foundation. I still I still try to teach as much as I can. I've gone around the country. I've spoken around the globe on the history of cannabis and you know what happens when you're able to embrace something uh, and, and change the way that the, that the community thinks about something and give them give them the ability uh, to create uh, jobs and and income and, and and tax revenue for the cities and you know, how, how this plant lifts people up. And that, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, seven, eight years. You are an ambassador of epic proportions, brother. Your father smiles and smiles over the incredible mantle that you have taken on. You are such a tremendous inspiration. You are one of the most humble human beings I have ever encountered. Um, your, your spirit, your knowledge, your passion, your conviction, uh, it would be just an understatement of the century to say, I know that you make your father so proud. You make us so proud. And we're just, we're so blessed to have you. 
is there anything that you want to to share or or tell us around? You know, we certainly see in our various legal states here, uh, folks with this with these genetics that they say that that are Jack Herrer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but we know that the original Jack Herrer is you <laughs> and your brand. Anything that you want to share with the audience ar- around that? Well. If, if you're looking for the brand of, of that that represents the actual legacy of my father, the intention behind this brand is community before commodity, and and really that that's my my father's legacy. Our, our products are are made with teaching elements in it, uh, so if somebody's looking at our packaging, uh, they'll see pieces of history uh, embedded into the into the background of our products because I want to make people think I want to engage people with my father's image on our products. Um, and if it doesn't have my father's image and my father's signature, if it doesn't say the original Jack Herrer, it's, it's just somebody, you know, in a, in a sense, uh, profiting off of, off of my father's name and, and, and taking away from the legacy that, that his family, uh, has earned and deserves, you know, and that's about as far as I really want to go into that. You know, but I, I am I am looking at, at, at trying to uh, control the name uh, Future Forward. We have trademarks uh, with the, with Jack Herrer and everything surrounding cannabis, but not cannabis yet. And uh, we'll be going after that immediately moving forward. You know, as soon as federal legalization happens and we have the ability to uh, trademark Jack Herrer and, and THC, we will do that immediately. Your father's image. Your father's signature and the words, the original Jack Herrer. That's what we want to be looking at. And by the way, when I am in California, that is the first thing I go for is the original Jack Herrer. Uh, Ten ways from Sunday that hands down, there is no competition. There is just me and the nearest dispensary and the original Jack Herrer. Oh, man, brother, man. I, I would like to say, you know, like we talked a lot about the, the Emperor Wears No Clothes as a book and as something that, that's out there in collectibles. But, you know, after after now 35 years, well, 36 years of the book being, you know, available or, or out there, um, it is still in print currently with a new edition, the 14th edition. Um, it's, a, it's only available through Amazon today, uh, you know, not just today, but, you know, that's that's the place where you can find this book. You don't have to buy uh, an older copy of the book. You can if you wish, but you can buy an affordable new copy of The Emperor Wears No Clothes uh, uh, through Amazon. Uh, just go to Amazon for Kindle, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, Kindle edition, and it'll give you either an option to have an electronic version, which is interactive, and or you can choose to have a printed version of the book um, and we've done this so it'll never go out of print again. It'll always be available. We're able to update it in real time if we need to, especially on on the digital format, which is interactive. And when I say interactive, it really means that uh, everything in the book that is that my father wrote uh, is in black ink. Um, that's all the original information, the original documentation. Uh, anything that we've updated in my father's book that we've added, uh, is in hyper, uh, it's in blue hyperlink ink. And 
when you go into the electronic uh, edition, if you're reading about my dad and you want to actually hear his voice or see him or, or feel his passion, you can click on the hyperlink and that it'll take you to a one hour documentary uh, based on his life and, and the things that he went through in order to uh, help create uh, the opportunities that we all share in today uh, with whether it's in hemp or cannabis. And it gives you an insight into who he was. And, and, and the life that he had. And then as you, as you go through the rest of the book, uh, and through each chapter, there's hyperlinks that take you to new information and new studies and testimonials and government uh, documentaries that were made that they denied that they made for decades and decades and decades that are all available right there uh, at, at the touch of a finger on the screen. And you can experience all of this information through this digital formatted uh, Emperor Wears No Clothes, which is just extraordinary. And the digital format's only $9.99, and a printed book delivered to your house is like 35 bucks. If you're interested in understanding what this is all about and why the world is all looking to, to, to find out why is cannabis and hemp, why is it so important, why is the whole world trying to fight over it at the moment, it's because of the information in this book and the, and the freedom of, uh, of, of having truth and clarity uh, brought to the forefront and and it, it's still an extraordinarily amazing uh, read and inspirational and if, if anybody takes anything away from this conversation today with joy and myself education is king educate yourself know what the history of this is understand that you know if you're in cannabis it's great to to to, to make money from it, but it's the community that's given us the opportunity to create the commodity of cannabis. Always remember that it's community first. Commoditizing cannabis is the second thing, but it is the one thing that we also need to be able to do in order to continue to push things forward. You know, keep your intentions strong and healthy. You know, make sure that the things you want to do come from your heart. Educate yourself and educate others and, uh, you know, embrace knowledge. Just as your father was, you are such a shining example of that, brother. And thank you that knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is empowerment. And the truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. And that is where we are today. Dan, you are just such an incredible human being, brother. I cannot wait to have you back on again. I am sending you so many positive vibes. I can't wait till we can commune in person again. I way miss your face. And by the way, may I ask, are we going to get to see you at NOCO, the Northern Colorado Hemp Expo, 7th and annual at the end of March? I was just invited last night to uh, to be a part of that. I, 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 I didn't realize that it was coming up so soon, nor did I realize the ability to actually get together uh, at, at such a scaled event. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was, I was told last night that the way it's set up is incredibly socially distant. All of the booths have their own space. Uh, the aisles are extraordinarily wide, so people aren't crammed in next to each other. Um, that, that there is a, a significant amount of significant amount of space. Everybody is spread out, and it's going to be as safe as it possibly can be. And you know, I, I'm very excited to think about going, but I haven't committed 100 uh, percent 
Um, but I can tell you right now, I, I, I want to be there. I know you do. There's no, there's no question you want to be. Hopefully you'll be able to make it. We will all be wearing masks. I will be there. I hope that I get to see you and, uh, and commune with you again, brother. <laughs> So many thanks for everything you do, for everything you are, um, and for continuing to educate and be dedicated and to sing the song of cannabis in all of its many forms, brother. You are such a key piece of our community, the global community. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today, brother. Well, thank you for all of those accolades. I don't know that I deserve them. Uh, I I think you do an extraordinary job within the space, and you are an educator every day. I see it in the things that you do and the things that you talk about. You, you are uh, a real gem, and, and I just love you. I love you back, honey. Thank you so much for those reflections. We'll have you on again until sta- until then. Stay healthy and keep doing what you do. Yes, ma'am. I will. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodConX. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at the TalkingHedgePodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.